Father, what a good moment that was when that old burden of sin rolled away at the cross. Thank you for newness of life in Christ. Thank you for the privilege of being part of your church under the watch of King Jesus. Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior. We thank you for the greatness of his resurrection and the affirmation of our faith through all of that. And we just pray that as we study the word together, we would progress in our understanding even of what it means to live with a resurrection power. Father, encourage our hearts and strengthen us today through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I, um, I'm not embarrassed to admit it, but I'm not 100% sure the pulpit is really the most appropriate place to say it. But it really does have to do with our text today, and it is, it is that I am a huge fan and I love to read Louis L'Amour Western novels. Now, some of you don't know what they are, but I've read lots of Louis L'Amour Western novels. Uh, the reason that a few people might have groaned is because it is true that if you've read one Louis L'Amour Western novel, you have read them all. Because Louis L'Amour, a great storyteller and, and lover of the West, used a very familiar and common storytelling technique. And we know it well. It is that there's a bad guy. And what color is his hat? Okay, and there's a good guy. And his color of his hat is? Of course. And, and you know that the bad guy attacks the good guy but the good guy wins. And don't we love that kind of storytelling? I mean, if you, I love the old Rifleman reruns, um, you know, Matt Dillon and, and all those kinds of stories, that's right down my alley. I really love it. I love Roadrunner and Coyote, man. I mean, and isn't it's just, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, the bad guy is always after the good guy, but the good guy wins. And when we turn to Matthew chapter 13 today, and we pick up the second parable in a series of nine stories that our Lord tells us in, in parabolic succession here, he's using parables to teach, that's exactly the format of our Lord's storytelling. He is, there is a good guy, there's a bad guy, the bad guy attacks the good guy, but the good guy's going to win, all right? Now, it is really interesting teaching, and um, as you know, Matthew 13 marks a pivotal point in Matthew's gospel, because our Lord is now teaching almost entirely in parables. Now, there's a couple more discourses that are coming that are extensive teaching. One that you'll look forward to is uh, the Olivet Discourse coming up in chapters 24, 25, up in there, where he's, the Lord is going to teach on the, the end times and the last days. It's very interesting. But as we turn to Matthew 13 and return there, we're now in verse 24, You'll recall that a couple weeks ago before Easter, we had the first of these nine parables and it was all about four different kinds of people represented in four kinds of soil. 
And our Lord was teaching about his kingdom, and that's what he's going to pick up on here. And it's a and once again, it is a story, a parable. If you're using the notes that I inserted in the bulletin today, you'll notice that I left the text box at the very end of the notes uh, to remind you why our Lord taught in parables, so we don't have to spend time reviewing that today. We will hit that again because he's going to Matthew's going to comment on it again in verse 34, but that won't be today. But you'll notice that it is in the context of a, a farm story. It's agriculture. It's about a farmer and it's about seed. But this time, instead of the soil being the focus, it's two kinds of seed. Now, let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 13. And our text begins in verse 24. And it says, He, that's Jesus put another parable before them. Now remember, we're using, practically speaking, the the children's definition of a parable, an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. It is using the common stuff of every day to share a story that nearly everyone can relate to in some manner, and yet you don't know exactly the parallel, exactly what is the comparison Now, thankfully, the disciples are going to assist us today and they will ask for us, what in the world did you mean by that? And our Lord is going to give a detailed explanation of this parable that we call the parable of the tares or the weeds. The ESV uses the word weeds. Let me comment on a couple things, almost like a parenthesis right now in the message. And uh, that'll help us when we read the text to understand a couple things. One is this concept of tares or weeds. Now, many of you around here can picture a winter wheat field. You know how the farmer will sow his field in wheat in the fall, and uh, God designed that seed to germinate in the ground, to lie dormant, and then when the warm sun of spring comes and the moisture of the snowfall and the moisture of the spring rains, you look across that growing field, it just comes alive, and it is like a beautiful green lawn when it's just at, at short growth. Now it's going to grow up and look more like what the picture is on the screen when it matures. What you need to know that what a tear is, is a kind of a weed um, that when it grows up with the wheat and was mixed in with the wheat in its early stages, when you looked across there, you could, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It was just a beautiful green growing wheat field. And um, it's believed to be a seed called the darnel. And it's just a weed. It's part of a family of weeds. And it is not useful and it's not helpful. And when intertwined with the wheat field, it caused lots of problems. The thing about it is you couldn't discern when it's in green growth, which is the wheat and which is the tear or the weed. The wheat and the weeds were impossible to tell apart. You're going to see that the farmer is going to respond to his sermons, servants, according to that principle. But it's after there's maturity and the grain begins to put on a head and and grow and mature that then you can see that the darnel, the weed, looks different than the wheat. An interesting principle comes out and we'll bump into it again, but isn't that what our Lord was teaching we will know the authenticity, the authenticity of our faith by what? By the fruit that it bears. 
And so the farmer has to wait and see what kind of fruit it bears to tell for sure what is a weed and what is wheat. Keep that in mind as we read the story. I want to comment briefly about one other thing, and that is that you'll notice in these parables, and this is kind of a, I'm still in a parentheses here, okay? Um, This is kind of a big subject, and I just want to comment on it a little bit. So this is not an exhaustive comment, but you need to know as the listener and as the reader, okay, listening to Jesus and reading our Bibles, that each of these parables, there's nine of them in a row, we're on the second of the two long, big ones, that they're all about what Matthew describes and Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so if you look at our text from two weeks ago, notice in verse 19 of chapter 13 that when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so Jesus is teaching about his kingdom. When we get to verse 24, um, which is the beginning of our text today, notice that he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven, and notice the next phrase, may be compared to. So he's telling a story that is to illustrate a point about the kingdom of heaven. And he says in this parable, is compared to. And the word like is substituted in later. Look at verse 31 about the parable of the the seed and the, uh, the parable of the mustard seed. Verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard. All right, so as the listener and the reader, we're supposed to do what? We're supposed to say, how? Well, what does he mean by that? All right, so you got... He's telling us a story, and he's wanting us to learn about the kingdom of heaven, and he's trying to show us how it is like this. And that goes on throughout every one of them. Back up in verse um, 34, he reminds us that he's not teaching them anything apart from parables right now. All right, And so the people who believe in him, the people who are following him, the people who surrendered their will to him have ears to hear, and they get understanding. The people who've hardened their heart against Jesus, the people who are rejecting him as Messiah, they're hearing his words, but they are not understanding his message. And it's part of their condemnation, actually. And it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. Verse 49, um, verse uh, uh, 52, excuse me, for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of this house. All right. So it's pretty important for us to kind of have an understanding as we go into our passage today and follow through with these parables. What does he mean by the kingdom of heaven? And that's where this turns into kind of a big subject, but it will help you to know a couple things. And then we will have a growing grasp of what he means by the kingdom of heaven. It is interesting to note that if you took your Gospel of Matthew and you read it carefully, and you took your yellow highlighter and you highlighted every time Matthew said the kingdom of heaven, you would have 32 highlights. 32 times Matthew says the kingdom of heaven. You know what's interesting about that? By contrast, Mark, Luke, and John never use that phrase. 
They use the phrase, the kingdom of God. All right, so the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And so then that brings to our mind, is there a difference? Are they the same? What does that mean? And so one of the things we want to do is we want to look at, well, how is that used? And why would Matthew use it one way and the other gospel writers use it another way? And so I ask you this question. When we started our study in the gospel of Matthew, um, we emphasized that Matthew was writing to a, an ethnic audience that was predominantly what? Jewish, yeah. And so do you know that in the Jewish mindset, you would not speak the names of God? All right? And so instead of saying the kingdom of Yahweh or the kingdom of God, Matthew, many Bible students would say, is using, replacing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of heaven, but meaning the same thing. Another thing that we want to do is look at how it's used. And if you'll bear with me just a few more minutes on these introductory remarks, let's go to Matthew chapter 19. And this is a very familiar story where the, the young ruler, we call him in Sunday school, the rich young ruler, or this young man who was characterized by great wealth, comes to Jesus and he asks the most important question that anybody can ever ask our Lord. Lord, how can I inherit eternal life? Isn't that a good question? That's just the right question. The problem with most people who ask that question is like the young ruler, the rich guy, the young rich guy, is that he doesn't like the way Jesus answers it. You remember in this story in Matthew 19, it begins with verse 16. We'll not read it, but let me just capture it quickly. When the young man comes to Jesus, he's very concerned to find the answer to this question, how may I inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and basically says, hey, that's simple. Just keep the law. And that works for you too. If you just keep the law, in other words, never sin. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) well, it's too late today already. All right. But this young man looks at Jesus, remember, and he says, fantastic. I've done that since I was a boy. I kept the law. And Jesus says, good for you. Now, Jesus, knowing that he was wealthy, says, now go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And the guy does what? He turns and he walks away sad because he had great wealth. And what did Jesus just do? He poked him in the eye. He says, All right, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and might, that captures the essence of the law. And if you love God enough, you'll do what I say. The second commandment is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So therefore, you would like it if your neighbor gets ice cream and you don't, just as much as if you get ice cream when your neighbor does and you don't. And so if you love your neighbor as yourself, you ought to be able to go sell your stuff, give it away and be exactly equally happy that you got it yourself. But your neighbor got it because you love your neighbor as yourself. You see the line of logic there? This young man refused to sell his stuff and give it away because he loved his stuff more than he loved his neighbor, thereby allowing our Lord to prove to him that he did not keep the law since he was he was selfish Okay, And so in turning to his disciples, Jesus continues to teach about this. 
And look what it says in verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, this is Matthew 19, 23, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. There's that interesting phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It's with difficulty. Why would it be difficult for a rich person to be saved and to repent of their sin and to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, for one thing, when you have everything you need and want and that much more, you don't have a felt need for anything, do you? And you sometimes think you can handle it and you can take care of it yourself. And so the Bible warns us of the dangers of wealth and how it, it changes our thinking and it makes our heart hard towards God. Notice then, as Jesus continues to teach in verse 24, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about exactly the same thing, I believe. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are replaceable terms for the same thing. Now we're back in Matthew 13. We're going to study a parable about the kingdom of heaven and we still haven't answered, well, what is it? (laughs) Well, let's ask this question. When John the Baptist began his public ministry and came in out of the wilderness, do you remember what the first recorded words were in Matthew 3 that we studied that John the Baptist said? His message immediately, the first recorded words were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And remember, he was announcing the coming of our Lord Jesus, so the Messiah. So one thing for sure we know is that the kingdom of heaven involves a king. And it involves Jesus. Interestingly enough, when we flip the page and we go to Matthew chapter 4, and our Lord Jesus becomes engaged in public teaching ministry, what is the very first thing he said that's recorded by Matthew at his public ministry? It's almost a direct quote of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So one thing we know also from that is that the kingdom of heaven is made up of repentant sinners. The way you get into the kingdom is you repent of your sin and you turn away from it and you turn to God and you make him Lord of your life and you enter into a whole new way of living. And so you are now part of a kingdom of God of repentant sinners who desire for Jesus Christ to Lord over them and to rule their lives and to walk in obedience. No, we're not perfect. Yes, we're in a progressive growth of sanctification and separation from sin. And we're looking forward to heaven when it'll all be made right one day. But in the meantime, we are identified with a spiritual kingdom, this spiritual of this kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual identification with all those who surrender to the will of God and to his word and work. You are part of his kingdom. I take it that the church, which God is working through in this age right now, is is something that is part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That we as his church are part of his kingdom in a greater way. I'm not sure I even understand everything that the ramifications are of this kingdom of heaven. But I hope that helps a little bit. He's talking about a spiritual kingdom. I mean, one day it'll be a literal and eternal kingdom. But now it's a spiritual identification with the master, with King Jesus, wanting to walk with him and being identified as his people. 
All right? So what he's trying to teach us as we read then is we're supposed to find out, okay, if you're part of this kingdom, you are identified with God, you are a repentant sinner and you have Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and he's your savior from your sin, then living in this new lifestyle, living in this kingdom, then you should expect it to be like this. And that's what he's already done with the four soils. There's going to be four different kinds of people that you're going to see a lot. And they're going to look like they're part of the kingdom, but they're really not. But others, then, he shows us are. All right, so I hope that helps a little bit. Okay, I'm going to close the parentheses. All right, and we kind of understand a little bit here about Darnell wheat and about weeds and about the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, so forth. All right, we'll keep learning. Let's get to our text. It might be helpful if you have the notes out of your bulletin nearby. And let's roll through our text and let's grasp what Jesus is trying to teach us about his kingdom. Let's begin now, once again, at Matthew 13, 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So it's about a farmer. But while his men, he has servants, were sleeping, his enemy, he has an enemy, came and sowed weeds, this Darnell weed, among the wheat, and then he went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. All right, so as it grew green, he couldn't tell them apart. That's going to affect his answer to his servants right now, who, by the way, these servants are number one in our outline. They'll react with frustration about this enemy. So the servants react with frustration as they recognize that there's been an enemy. And the servants of the master, verse 27 of the house, came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? They're frustrated. The servants express their frustration. And the master says in verse 28, we have a brutal enemy. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. All right, so it's difficult to tell the difference. And and he doesn't want them going out and messing with the crop because these roots, as the weed and the wheat grow together, they intertwine their roots. And if you go and try to pull them up, you're going to tear up the whole field and you're going to lose your crop. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing there. That's, and he wants them to wait. And the enemy has done this. It is interesting to note that in history books, they've found laws on the books in Rome where this was a prosecutable crime. To overseed somebody's field with weeds was a prosecutable crime. So it was evidently something that was known in that day that an enemy could do to somebody to really create damage to their cash crop or to their produce. And they would sneak in and they would spread and broadcast these weed seeds and they wouldn't know it. And even as the green came up and the beautiful green and the sunshine and then the rains come, but then when it's taking on grain, as he says, as it took on grain and they said, do you want us to go start pulling them up? He said, no, let's finish the story. Verse 29, and we find out that there will be a burning of the weeds. The end of verse 28, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along the way. Verse 29, verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. 
And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles. This is a benevolent farmer. He's just relaxed about this. He'll let the weeds grow. Just let it go. He's going to let the weeds grow. But at the end, there is this burning of the weeds. At harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so there is this blessed harvest and the wheat does end up in the... All right, so we're listening and we're, our master is teaching us about his kingdom and we're supposed to compare the realities of kingdom, of his kingdom, with what's gone on in this farmer's life and it's compared to, it is like this. Well, thankfully, as our eyes go over to verse 36, the disciples, when they get in the house with Jesus, ask him to please explain. It's very helpful. And so the disciples request an explanation. Let's continue reading. We'll skip over the other parts. We'll pick those up next week as we put together several of the shorter parables for one message. The Lord willing, verse 36, Then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Verse 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping, and there will be gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, and he who has ears, let him hear. You know a little bit of light is starting to come on here. I'm starting to get this a little bit. So as we break it down and the disciples request an explanation, we see, first of all, that the sower equals the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Son of Man was the most common way that Jesus referred to himself. It's a focus on his incarnation. You know, he's all God and he's deity, but he's all man in his humanity. And so it was a focus on his humanity, the son of man. The sower is Jesus, the son of man. The field is the world. It's what he says in verse 38 at the beginning of it. Look what he says. The field is the world. I'm starting to get this even more. And I like this. Jesus is sowing good seed all around the world. Not just here. I mean, don't you think it gets discouraging living in this world? You watch the news or look at the headlines and you think that there are certainly sections of this world where there's a lot more weed than wheat. And it seems like the weeds are taking over. But the master says, don't pull him up yet. He's a benevolent master and he says, let the weeds grow. I get the idea that the master is not bothered that much. He's in control and he knows how it's going to end. Good guy, bad guy, bad guy attacks, good guy, good guy wins. I really like that. 
He says the field is the world. And then on in verse 38, in the middle part of the verse, he says the good seed, it's, it's people. It's the sons of the kingdom. It's his children that he plants all around the world. That's great. We're not alone. It is an exclusive gospel, but it's not given exclusively to anyone. It's all over the place. And he's planted his people everywhere. Now, notice in my list, if you're following the notes under the the explanation that Jesus is giving the disciples, that I put down sleeping. You see, I put this in there on purpose. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't explain sleeping? I wanted him to. I'm like, I got it figured out. The farmer sowed the seed. The servants went to sleep when they were supposed to be watching the field. And the evil one snuck in and overseeded and ruined it. No. See, I put it in on purpose so that we would learn a lesson about parables. You have to be careful to only let the parable go so far. And only so far as what the Word of God identifies and defines. And as Jesus explains it, Jesus doesn't mess with the sleeping servants. I take it that it was fine for them to sleep. I take it that farmers need their sleep, right, Eric? For, you got to go to sleep once in a while. You got to get up and milk cows, and, and you got to do all the things that farmers do. And you're tired. And it's just the idea was that at a time when they didn't suspect or their guard was down, the, it just happened. And so I wanted to point that out that be careful of always drawing a parallel spiritual lesson in these parables. Get the main point, get what Jesus has said, get what other parts of Scripture tell us are true. But be careful. So sleeping, it's just unexplained. But the weeds, he goes on to say, are sons of the evil one. They are evil, wicked people that the evil one, and he says the enemy sower, that's the devil, has planted, verse 39a, and then. There is this harvest coming, though, but the harvest specifically represents the end of the age. So there's a time frame here. The farmer's not in a hurry. He's going to let it grow, and he's going to let the weeds grow with the wheat. The reapers are angels. Isn't it interesting? He didn't let the servants go reap. But he said, I got these expert reapers. And at his beck and call, Farmer Jesus is going to call the reaping angels and they're going to know exactly how to go separate the wheat from the tares. This is how it is in my kingdom. There's good people, but right among the good people, right among the righteous ones, right among the repentant sinners are wicked weeds that are growing up. That's the explanation I had a whole list of things that I thought that Jesus was giving us by way of information about his kingdom here. Let me just point out four in the bullet points. The Lord reveals information. First of all, don't you get from this that clearly there is a clearly defined enemy who is continually seeking to undermine the work and the people of God. One thing we're supposed to get is that in God's kingdom, we have an enemy. And that enemy is continually trying to undermine the work of our master and our master's people. That would be us. The church is under attack. God's people are under attack. 
The enemy is trying to destroy and tear down. First Peter 5 says that he goes about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Ephesians 6, Paul instructs us to be sure and put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand against the, the schemes, the wiles, the King James says, the schemes of the devil because our, our master has an enemy and he's always trying to tear down our master's work and destroy our master's people. Another important thing that I think Jesus is giving us as information for his kingdom is the second bullet point is that sons of the kingdom or people of God, sons of the kingdom, people of God are scattered all over the world. In other words, God's people are everywhere. Now, there are places where there's very few stalks of wheat And it seems that the enemy has overseeded incredibly in certain spots of the globe. But around the world, there God has seeded his people. I was late last night and I was in the dungeon. I've been off this week. And um, I don't don't always tell you when I take vacation because I don't want you to know how much vacation I have. But um, that's not true. Um, But I just stayed home. Jonathan was on spring break, and so I'm preaching today after not really being in my normal routine. And so yesterday was given to the study of the Word, and late last night I was in what I call my dungeon. When I say I'm in the dungeon, that means I'm working on my sermons. It's the corner of my basement that is unfinished that I have a a place where I work on my sermons. And it was late, going on midnight last night, and I had Love and Johanny and Elamia Capesi on my mind my dear brothers in Christ in Malawi, and I spun my chair around and, and I shot him an email and I told him that you love them. And I told him that Fellowship Bible Church stands with them, never fear. And to know that we love them and we're, we're giving and we're praying. And I assured them of my love. I hadn't spoken with them for a long time. And I was just picturing them. I can picture their homes having been there. And, you know, they're six hours ahead of us. So at going on midnight last night, it was going on 6 a.m. in Southeast Africa where they are and their churches and ministries and getting up and, and going out among the people in Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Malawi, cities where there are masses just teeming with people and then rural countryside where you'll walk down a grass path and under a tree you'll find good seed. You'll find God's people way out in the bush of Zimbabwe, way out in the boondocks of Malawi, poor people that the master has seeded the earth with. And there they are praising King Jesus. I love that. I love being part of his kingdom. Focused on his church and church growth and spreading the gospel. In fact, We need to know that the third bullet point is that there are really only two categories of people in the world. There's people of the king and there's people of the devil. There's sons of the kingdom and there's sons of the evil one. That's it. So one of the things you have to ask yourself is, who am I? Am I a weed or am I wheat? Who am I? And, and, And am I bearing fruit? You know, there's a spiritual principle here of bearing fruit. In fact, I think the final bullet point is is informative for us in this information that Jesus gives us about his kingdom here and his teaching. The final bullet point under point number three is that there is time for judgment. There is a time for judgment, and it is not now. 
You notice that the servants wanted to go pull up the darnell. They wanted to go pull up the weeds. And I was just thinking about that. I didn't put in your notes, but let me just very quickly suggest to you why the master is holding back on judgment, holding back on tearing up the weeds. The first thought that came to me was that First of all, it's not always easy to tell a weed from a wheat at first. So maybe we would get it wrong. We are not God's instruments of judgment. And part of that is because is we don't always know who's a weed and who's a wheat. Right? And that's where Jesus' spiritual principle of identifying his own comes in. And remember what it is. We will know them by their fruit. You've got to let some maturation take place. Secondly, tearing out weeds is a messy business, isn't it? Imagine what it would be like if we thought we were the sheriff, the judge, the executioner, and we went around casting judgment as wheat on all the weeds that we could find. It would just disrupt the whole agenda of the church. We would be known for like slaughtering people. I think there's other religious faiths that do that. That are trying to bring judgment on the world through their own hand by blowing people up and cutting their heads off and drowning them in steel cages. And they think they're supposed to bring judgment. But Jesus said, no, no, no. Let the weed just grow. Let it grow. It's not the day of judgment yet. Tearing out weeds out of the church is messy business. It would really distract us. It is not, thirdly, the role of God's people, the church, to bring judgment, but rather to evangelize. That's another reason why I said don't bring judgment. Your job is to share the good news, not to swing the sword of execution. Final thought on this is, I think that it's a picture of grace. I think that part of the reason that the master holds back the servants from tearing up the field, trying to get the weeds and the wheat separated before he's ready, is that he's allowing time for the weeds to grow as a picture of his grace. Now, his judgment is coming. Let's note that, and we'll come back to this point of his grace very quickly. Let's wrap up our message here. You think quickly, and I'll talk quickly. But let's not miss this important part. It occurred to me, our final point of our message is that Matthew here, in his words of judgment, remind us of the book of Revelation. Now notice in verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out all his kingdom out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and lawbreakers. Notice that this is his kingdom, and he allows sinful lawbreakers to exist. And throw them in the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Listen. This is a picture of this fiery furnace. It's incredible. In, in Revelation chapter 20, starting with verse 10, it's where it talks about taking the beast and the false prophet and the Antichrist and throwing them in the eternal lake of fire where they will be in torment forever and ever. It reads a lot just like this. It reminds us of this, this unquenchable fire. The first thing you need to know about this is what, look what he says in verse 41. All of the causes of sin and the lawbreakers 
Letter A is that this, this fiery furnace is letter A for unbelievers. It's for unbelievers. And as I compared it with Revelation chapter 20, later in that passage, there's going to be the great white throne and, and non-believers of all times will stand there before them, before King Jesus on this throne. And, and the book will be opened. And in the book, if their name's not there, it will be proven to them by their works, which are recorded in the books as to why their name is not in the book. And then they will be cast, if their name is not there, into this unquenchable, eternal, everlasting place of torment where there is gnashing of teeth and weeping. I was thinking about this, and I think letter B, it's just unimaginable. It's unimaginable. Sam Erickson, who's with the Lord now, is one of our leaders here for many years. He said to me one time, and it stuck in my mind, he said, you don't really believe in eternal lake of fire. I said, what do you mean by that? Because this is a controversial point, theologically and biblically speaking, in our world today. People are trying to get, away, get, get rid of this doctrine of eternal literal judgment in the lake of fire. He said, if we really believed it, we would be driven by this reality. Why would we be embarrassed of the gospel? Why would, we, we, why would we be afraid to speak to our neighbor about Christ if we really believed that they had the capacity and the potential to be harvested up as a weed and burned in unquenchable torment forever? I think Sam's right. If we really believe it, it's got to show, doesn't it? Because let her see, it's unbearable. It's an unbearable thing to be burned. Letter D, it's unquenchable. That means it never ends. It's unquenchable. Letter E, it's an unchangeable eternal destiny. These weeds will be gathered by these expert angelic harvesters at the voice command of their master, and they will not miss one weed, and they will not mistake one wheat for a weed, and they will gather them up, and they will separate them out, and the weeds will be bundled, and they will be put into this eternal lake of fire forever. I'm not making this up. It's what Jesus is teaching about. It's how it works in his kingdom. You know what the good news is? The good news is, is that weeds can become wheat. Jesus isn't teaching this in this passage, but that's what's true. I made a typo. It's not John 1.15. It's John 1.12. On your notes there, please correct that. Remember what that says? But to all who did receive him to them to who believed on his name to them he gave the right to become the sons or the children of God you know, weren't we all weeds at one time and the gospel has a way of taking a weed and changing its genetic structure so that the old is gone and the new has come and you're a new a new plant in Christ a new creation in Christ and your wheat. This is not the day of judgment, people. Don't panic. No one is getting away with anything. I find it very encouraging that the good guy's going to win in the end. And the bad guys are going to lose, and they're going to lose badly, kind of like Oklahoma last night, only worse. I shouldn't have said that. It's too serious. 
Stay with me. Then the big question is, as we learn these lessons of the kingdom, you have to say to yourself, who am I? Am I wheat or am I weed? Have I called out to God in repentance of my sin and asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior? Have I been to the cross, at the cross, where He took my sin upon Himself and He substituted in and He paid the price, the demands of a holy God and gives me His righteousness so that I am qualified to stand in the presence of a holy God. I become wheat. Let's bow our heads. We you ask yourself that question, am I weed or am I wheat? Part of the reason judgment hasn't come yet is to give you time to uh, examine yourself, make sure you're right with God. Have you been to the cross, my friend? Have you admitted your sinfulness? Have you repented of that sin? Have you believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead and been saved, converted from weeds to wheat? I'd love to speak with you afterwards. I'll be at the back door. There's others here we can direct you to. Please linger to speak with us if we can help you understand the concepts of the kingdom here. Why don't we stand together and close in prayer? And so, Father, it's been our great privilege to have our Bibles and to study and to hear, as it were, the very voice of our Lord Jesus in His teaching in these parables about the kingdom. Would you please, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, as He takes the Word, continue to open our eyes to these truths and have an understanding of what it means. Father, as we look around the world, we recognize there are a lot of weeds, but thank You that the Master has sown His seed. And thank You for the Master's holding back His hand of judgment for today, that there's still time for salvation. Would you burden our hearts with the reality of the unquenchable, horrible nature of the eternal fiery furnace? Break our hearts for our lost family, our lost friends, our lost neighbors. Help us to represent You well. Father, we commit ourselves to You for another week. Cover us with Your hand. Encourage us with your word. Strengthen us through the ongoing ministry of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray today with thanksgiving in our hearts. Amen.